Why is it important for Christians to study medieval church history? Nicole Ryby is a historical theologian on faculty at Loyola University in Maryland. She explores the need for better understanding the broad landscape of Christian history and introduces us to new theological conversation partners from the medieval period. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Nicole, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So you've pointed out to me that if a student is sick for a week when they're in seminary, it's possible that they would miss a thousand years of church history. Yes, that can happen. Uh, uh, sometimes we cover um, Anselm or Aquinas very quickly in seminary. And so uh, if you're having a rough patch, it's really easy just to miss, um, yeah, a big chunk of Christian history. Well, and I grew up in the Reformed tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, I came to Princeton Seminary for my MDiv. And I'll admit that church history almost felt like, you know, there were like, there's the early church history and we have the councils mm-hmm. and, you know, we got the Apostles' Creed and uh, we got the Nicene Creed. And then, like, some stuff happened. Yep. And the Reformation then, like, swooped in and fixed it. Yep. <laughs> I assume you think that's problematic. Um, I do think it's problematic, but I also think that that is super common. I mean, there's always the balance of, like, in a course, like, how much can you actually cover? And given that mm-hmm. um, at Protestant seminaries, the Protestant Reformation is, I mean, for our own traditions, it makes sense that we spend more time with Luther and Calvin than, let's say, Anselm and Aquinas, because those can feel like they have less priority um, within people's own traditions. But I think that's also why we need to um, cover them a bit more robustly, because I got Calvin all the time, you know, in, at Princeton. Um, Love it. Love Calvin. But like church history was the only real opportunity to, um, to even explore the medieval world. Um, So I think as church historians and historical theologians, um, I think we should make stronger cases for why it is important to, um, to really study these parts of history that we don't see as, you know, directly relevant, but it's the Christian tradition. All of it's relevant. You can see that Luther and Aquinas, or sorry, Luther and Calvin are using Aquinas at some points. At least he's uh, lingering in the background, you know? And Mm -hmm. um, like Luther, in my mind, is a medieval theologian you know how he's approaching it it's it feels like a medieval mode and when can you explain that a little bit like give me an example of something really concrete that would you'd be like that sounds really medieval that would be ascribed to Luther. Mm. i think that uh particularly when you look at the history of popular piety um coming out of the 15th century and that there is just a radical increase of lay people having access to the Bible and reading the Bible. I don't think you get a sola scriptura without that, you know, without that historical Mm -hmm. context. Um, And you can see really throughout the 15th century of lay people um, 
and um, lay leaders, you know, the, the princes and the town councils taking more of, a, of an active role in um, maintaining the churches and maintaining the faith. And so to me, that seems medieval. It's, it's late medieval, but it's, it's medieval. Um, mm-hmm. I had a great professor in, when, at Boston College who pointed out like that Calvin and Luther have more in common with Aquinas than they do with someone like John Locke, who's going to write just 100 years later, you know? Like you see a divide in how people start thinking um, in that early modern period that comes like right after the Reformation. And you really do see a different way of approaching the world. Um, So I think how they, um, how Luther and Calvin still so integrate uh, understanding God everywhere you know, and their understanding of providence still feels very medieval to me. So, so it sounds like in one sense, what we're missing, if we don't have a better understanding of medieval history is context. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Are there other things that you feel like we're missing other than, I mean, that's super broad, right? Yeah. Im- important, but really broad. Are there other things you'd say that we're just totally missing out on? I just love the medieval period. So I think there's so many things that we're missing out on. What initially Uh, captured your interest? For me, I think it was the feeling of we have all these issues going on in systematics. And I was like, where is the history here? Um, uh, And so that's what made me really want to dive into history in general of thinking that like, there really aren't necessarily new problems. We just pay more attention to them now. And so it's like um, in issues with uh, how do you care for the poor? Hmm. There's always been poor people in our communities, but we've dealt with them differently or like we've integrated them into the life of the church differently. So uh, so I wanted to find those those own those resources um we don't have to invent everything from scratch um all the time um and i just found that uh the medieval period has so much that is unexplored and presumed to not be there that uh i feel like it's just a treasure trove like you can just go and find stuff so for a historian this period is like a playground Oh my gosh, it's amazing. And like you discover, I'm discovering new things all the time. And then when I tell people that I found this text about someone, they're like, oh, when was that written? And I'm like, 1470. And they're just like, what? What are you talking about? How can that be? Another unique thing, I mean, something unique about the medieval period is that it is pre-Reformation. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about some of the unique opportunities you've had maybe in your studies or in your, your work teaching to kind of find um, perhaps some more common ground or have you had unique opportunities? Yeah, I've had a lot of opportunities. Um, I have had the opportunity to um, 
to live in in France uh, for a fair amount of time because of this. And this was a program through um, Boston College, which is where I did my PhD work, where there is an exchange with the Ecole Normale Supérieure. And so I got to spend my last year of my PhD program uh, writing in France, which is pretty incredible. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, I mean, I do think that does something to my own or has done something to my own perspective. So like when I was editing my dissertation, I edited it in this, in this cafe, it's the the Finnish cafe. It's their cultural center. They have this great cafe that's right across the street from the Clooney, which is the medieval museum. And it's, and it's, um, contained in the ruins of a of an old monastery and so I would wow. edit my work while I was looking at this 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 crumbling uh I mean it's restored uh a monastery and it's just like this is awesome um wow. but like I think it gives me the perspective of of time in some ways on like Christianity is really old and we have all these it feels like all these urgent fights that are going on, but they're not going to feel urgent forever, you know? And like, um, I, I think that that is helpful and that you keep on coming back to, or I keep on coming back to the idea that like, there's something fundamental about the gospel preached in each generation that keeps people coming back you know, and mm-hmm. keeps it coming, going on. Mm-hmm. And, and if we paused, we might find some new companions yeah. in that journey. Oh my, yes. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of like, um, medieval friends in my mind where, yeah. uh, I do think that's also really important is finding your theological friends that aren't in your own time period. Um, hmm. and I do think of it as theological friendship in the sense of like, you give them, a lot of grace on that their times are not your own and so sometimes they say things that are like oh that's not great for the 21st century but that's okay you know so let's um let's talk about some of the things you found in this treasure hunt um you've told me you've mentioned to me a few different people that you find fascinating um one is a woman named Teresa. yes do you want to talk a bit about her and yeah kind of how you came across her and then what you've uncovered? Yeah. So um, right now my current project is on Teresa de Cartagena, who is a 15th century um, uh, Cistercian nun. So she is incredible. Um, So she's Spanish and she's working in uh, Castile around Burgos Mm -hmm. and um what makes her so interesting, a little bit of context, is the 15th century is when you have waves and waves of forced conversions of, of the Jewish population within Castile. And so what happens um, in one of these big waves in 1391 is that you have a massive influx of converts um, into the Catholic Church. And, you know, we we would think that's a great thing um, because it's like, oh, this is awesome. Um, Because throughout the medieval period and the patristic period, it's like there's a mission to convert the Jews. That's not an uncommon thing. Um, And so you have all this forced conversion, forced conversions, not great. Um, 
But what happens is that there's so many social ramifications um, because there were there were laws restricting um, kind of the economic political and social movement of Jews at the time. And so when they convert, those uh, restrictions are taken off because now they're Christians. So their their status as being either a Jew or a Christian determines their place in a certain hierarchy. Exactly. And so, and definitely when you become a Christian in Castile, you, you um, move up in that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so just imagine a massive kind of social political and economic emigration of the population. And so it's a, which all, is a huge disruptor, right? It's a yeah, that's what it it's that's the right word. It's just a huge disruptor. And so there's a backlash against these converts. Um they're called morenos or um conversos. Okay. Um and so all of a sudden the um the vitriol that w- and persecution strategies that were used against um the Jewish minority in Castile were now being used on these converts. So it's Christians versus Christians. And you have something called converso theology that's emerging. And it's really focused on what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, People were saying, well, there's a difference between old Christians and new Christians. New Christians are are those who converted. And, um, this is also in 1449 where there starts being laws passed against conversos and saying that what makes them different is their blood you know that genetically they are different this is i mean this is a ridiculous claim but it's also undermining baptism like and just how do you become a christian and so it's within converso theology that they're like everyone has to join the church at some point like there's no such thing as an old christian because christianity is not something that's genetic you become a christian when you're baptized the end you know it's it's not it's not hereditary um and it's not something that's passed down family to family sure your family gets has you baptized and everything but becoming a no one is born a christian Everyone has to be baptized. And the conversos kind of unsurprisingly use Paul a lot because Paul's a converso in their minds. They're like, he was a Jew who converted. So uh, they use Paul a lot. And so they're going to use that idea of like, there is no Jew or Gentile in Christ and within the church. Uh, So why I think this is particularly interesting is because you have this biological argument it, it is basically saying that they're that they have a blood disorder or that keeps them from being fully Christian. Mm-hmm. And um, I had been poking around around disability theology because I just I think it's interesting. My family has some issue, uh, some background in that. Um, and the way that people with disabilities are also treated as if they are not fully Christian in the church mm-hmm. that they're treated particularly in the medieval period but I would say like still now like people well, there are, are no tre- new problems as you said right exactly there's no new problems like um, people with disabilities uh, back then were particularly treated like they couldn't really understand the sacraments they couldn't fully participate mm-hmm. um, in church 
And I think, I mean, I do think we still do that um, in a myriad of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I I was just seeing that this was really interesting. So Teresa. Yeah, Teresa. So Teresa's a converso. Mm-hmm. Um, and her family was a very, very prominent um, Jewish family that converted in 1391. And so her grandfather, who was one of the most famous rabbis in Spain, he converts. Um, he he baptizes his, his sons. Um, many of them go on to become uh, bishops and delegates at mass at major church councils um they are high up in the um in the court you know of like the royal court um they're in the military like Mm -hmm. they're a very prominent family and um as a daughter what they did with her and this um and she's a younger daughter they put her in a franciscan monastery uh, or convent um probably when she was in her mid teenage years, like probably 13, 14, 15. And it was while she was uh, in the Franciscan convent that the wave of converso violence broke out of violence against conversos. And the Franciscans seem to have been, if not a part of this initial wave, they bet they very much sub support anti-converso things coming out of it and so she she is moved into a cistercian uh, community and she goes deaf uh, fairly soon after that while she's a part of this community yeah so it's after she leaves the franciscans um but we also know it's before she's 25 yeah and so she is really isolated you know just imagine going deaf uh when you are in a culture that um is mainly uh auditory so uh how do you hear mass you know how do you how do you participate in church when you're deaf um and but she was from this very prominent family and a very educated family so she had the distinction of being able to not only read but have access to a lot of good theological books like this is this is why every pastor should have a library (laughs) like basically (laughs) i think that's what it's it's just a reason for me to buy more books is like who knows just in case just in case i go deaf yeah Um, but she that would have made her exceptional in and of itself right exactly that she could read all those books Mm -hmm. and that she had access that's amazing yeah and so she for the next 20 years um she really turns to her books because she she doesn't have anyone else to talk to um so when she goes deaf she has a vision from god um of god placing uh of a man placing his fingers on his uh lips kind of in a shh, like be quiet uh, vision. And she takes that as like that God is giving her deafness. But then she has a second vision of, again, um, a man with his fingers to her lips. And the second vision she um, understands as God commanding her never to speak again. So she can speak. Like she could go to confession if she wanted to. But she feels um, divinely commanded not to. 
And so she really cuts herself off from her community. And so she turns to books. Um, wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's this really interesting tension between being an active and passive agent in her own disability, because like she's a passive agent in, in regards to her uh, loss of hearing, but she is an active agent in her muteness. And mm-hmm. so she is exerting control over her situation in a situation where it would seem like she had very little control, um, which is, I mean, that's a book, you know, <laughs> on itself. Um, but then she writes these two spiritual treatises about, the first one is about um, disability, like what it's actually like to um, to to not be able to hear, to be in physical pain, and to how do you understand that spiritually? How do you get out of the narrative that you are being punished by God? Um, how do you see this as a special grace? And that she she has this idea of the convent of the infirmed, um, almost as if everyone with these chronic illnesses or disabilities are have been spiritually um, pledged to this convent with almost a special charism of and that's something she kind of created yes or... uh, as far as I can tell that is something mm-hmm. that is unique to her um, and and I think that's really interesting given her monastic or uh, yeah her setting that um, to frame it as a charism, you know, that there's something special that she, she talks about how people with disabilities see God differently and see God more clearly. And like, Hmm. that is radical, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, that's still a radical thing. I think for many people in the church today. So this might go without saying, but I assume that it's, it's pretty easy to to think through how understanding someone like Teresa could help us understand our own context better. Yeah, exactly. Perhaps that goes without saying, but no. I but I think I I think historians need to say that more so people understand. Uh, I think for historians, um, we're like, yeah, of course, but it's not. Uh, it's not. It doesn't go without saying. Um, and there's still work to make those connections. Um, but I think, I mean, particularly when you look at disability theology, it really does, uh, you can start seeing some of the antecedents, uh, of it coming out of World War, um, two and like the disabled vets coming home, but you really don't see it starting, uh, in earnest. I think until the eighties and nineties, um, at least within the North American context and to be able to find, um, a 15th century figure and to be able to say here's my like here's my spiritual antecedent here's my history you know Mm -hmm. that there's been people like me in the tradition and she is defending the rights of people with disabilities and 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 but she doesn't sugarcoat the pain of it either like um 
she's so incredible because she talks about physical pain, but then she also does talk about the social pain of disability, kind of this social construction of disability where what it feels like to be rejected by friends and family because they're tired of you being ill and they're tired mm-hmm. of taking care of you. Oh, I like there are parts of like this text is a medieval text. So it's, it, it reads differently from our, uh, from like modern texts, obviously. Mm-hmm. But there were points when I was reading it the first time where I was just crying because like she is, her pain is so palpable, you know, mm-hmm. on. In a way that allows you to understand other people's pain. Right? Exactly. Paul Rorum wrote this great article um, about, um, hopefully I don't get it wrong, but he said that doing history is like the first year in a church where you don't go around and mess things up. You know, you don't, the first year that you're in a pair, like in a community, you don't go and like change everything. You sit and you listen and you understand, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I think history is doing. That or, or If I remember right, that's what Dr. Warren wrote in this article and it's resonated with me of like you listen first you understand why uh this theologian is writing how they're writing what are their concerns and like in that in in the midst of all their historical particularity you do kind of get to the heart of their own faith you know Mm -hmm. on that Mm -hmm. you really do see in all of these figures that I have studied, a deep and abiding belief that God loves them. And yeah, I can be friends with that person. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. On our production and research team, we have Garrett Mostowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. Christy Holly works the creative design angle. From the whole team at Princeton Seminary, thanks for listening.